0: got you there got got you? there 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 there
1: Today on What Got You There, we sit down with the master of peak performance, Steve Magnus. Steve was a high school phenom with the mile, running it in four minutes and one second which was the best time in the U.S. at that race. He later goes on to become one of the top coaches in the world and also the author of Peak Performance, his newest book, and also The Science of Running. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Are you looking to finish the latest thriller, such as The Girl on the Train, while you're at the gym or in the car? Well, now you can. For listeners of What Got You There podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check this out. Head over to www.audibletrial.com forward slash there to choose from over 180,000 titles to select the book you want to hear next. Steve, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Sean.
1: Yeah, I know you've got a busy week with the release of the book, so we really appreciate you taking the time. My listeners are going to get a ton out of this episode. Yeah, no problem. So something I ask every single one of my guests is, how do you start your day? Any morning routines or rituals you do?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, and a lot of people ask that. And actually, mine has kind of been the same for probably the last I don't know 15 years of my life. And it's pretty simple. Like I wake up, I have a like bottle of water on my nightstand, and just down that as soon as I uh, as soon as I wake up. And then it's literally put on my running shorts socks and shoes and head out the door either for a run or now as a coach like to practice like I there is very little that goes on um in my life before I'm either
1: running or watching other people run do you pick out your clothes your shoes the night before or right when you get up you're just going and grabbing that stuff
0: yeah you know it's, it's funny I have it like conveniently um positioned in my my bedroom where it's like I just have a stack of running shorts (laughs) and then sucks and like, it's literally just grab and go um, so that I don't have to think about it,
1: you know? Oh my gosh, I do the exact same thing. And for some reason, just doing that without having to think about it makes my morning so much better. So for my listeners who are unfamiliar with you, I know they heard your intro. We'll get into your story as we progress here. But why are you on this podcast? You want to give a little background to yourself and what you're currently doing?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, my story is, is kind of all over the place. I guess it starts when I was in high school. As, uh, I was I was essentially a high school phenom. So my senior year of high school, I ran a mile in 401, so four minutes and one second, just missed breaking four, which at the time was number one in the country, number three or four in the world for high school students. So I was like, I was big time, you know, I, I, I ran a professional track race, the Prefontaine classic, which is like one of the biggest or the biggest American pro track race, uh, in the country. So I was racing like Olympic champions and Olympic medalists and all this stuff. And like, I thought like, okay, you know, I'm doing this as a high school, like Olympic medals, the Olympic dreams were all in my future. And that's like what I thought, like, it didn't really bother me that I just missed breaking four because in my head, I was like, oh, this is no big deal. Like, next year, next race, like, I got this, no problem. And, and what happened was, I transitioned to college, and you know, my mile, my best mile ever is still that 401. Um, and I just had a hard time transitioning and, and kind of went through a period where I, I burned myself out because with any driven individual, I don't think motivating yourself or motivating them is a problem like I I was I wanted to run fast and I was going to train as hard as I could to get there the problem with with people like myself and other people are really driven is actually in holding them back and I didn't have anyone to really do that so as a as an 18 19 year old kid I was running you know, up to 120 miles per week. So 17, 18 miles a day <laughs> kind of on average. Well, 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 being in college, right? And uh, trying to study and stuff like that. So it, it was just kind of, I burned out, you know, physically, mentally, all that stuff. And then had to, you know, sort through what that meant and figure out how how to deal with that and how to cope with that and then also transition into what I'm doing currently, which is coaching collegiate and then professional runners and um, seeing how to take those lessons that I learned and that I experienced and make sure that that doesn't happen to other athletes. And that's that's kind of the synopsis of how I've gotten to here and also the, the synopsis of how and why um, I wrote this book is is to look at all right, how do we avoid people making the mistakes
1: I did? <laughs> Got you. So I want to rewind to high school. So how did you actually first get into running? I mean, if you become this phenom by the time you're a junior or a senior, I'm assuming that you'd be involved with running your entire life.
0: Yeah, you know, um, running was something I did, but it wasn't it, it wasn't my number one thing. Like growing up I played soccer, right? And I th- I would thought like I was going to be like soccer star and all that good stuff. But, and I was good at soccer, but the only or the main reason I was good was that I could outrun, out sprint and outlast anybody on the soccer field. So I'd just be running around and that was my saving grace. And I ran a little bit, but it wasn't it wasn't a big part of my life until probably my freshman year in high school. Um, I, I went out for cross country and. I ended up making the varsity team as a freshman, which was a big deal, and like, ended up the season being our number one um, guy. And the coach turned to me and said, hey, Steve, like, you don't know this, but you're, like, you're really good, and if you want to like, be really good at the sport, I don't think you should play soccer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Time to give that one up, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, so I'm so curious. So you are a phenom in high school. First off, what is it like mentally just prior to you running that four-minute mile? Are you just nonstop training, 100% focused on running, or are you just the average high schooler and just happen to have an an unbelievable skill set?
0: No, I was, I, you know, I'm I'm talented, I'll say that. But what, what really was my talent was my, like, obsession and drive, I think. And, like, I did not have the normal high school experience that everyone did. Like, as I said, I would... My normal high school routine was get up and run nine miles before school started, and then once school ended, I'd go to track practice or run another eight eight miles in the evening, and that was that was it. And I'd go to bed at ten o'clock at night, um, regardless of what was going on, and very seldom, especially as I got better. Like I didn't start as this, but as I got better and better, like it took on this obsession where. Like I would skip the parties. I would skip all the stuff, hanging out with good (laughs) friends and stuff. And literally like everyone in my high school knew like I might show up to things. But as soon as like 945 came, like it would be like, oh, Steve's out. (laughs) There it goes. (laughs) You know, And and it was the same for like this blows my mind looking at it now. I'm like, wow, I really thought this. But like my high school prom, like I left early. You know, I was like, oh, it's like 945. Like, you know, all my other friends were like going out and staying up until, you know, 3 a.m. and going to different people's houses and stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, I've got a track meet in probably two or three weeks. So I'm gonna go to bed. And I I remember my date at the time was like, Are you serious? I'm like, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I gotta go to bed. So I'm gonna drop you off. And You know, I think her her mind was blown and that relationship didn't last too long after that. (laughs) So
1: you actually did drop her off? You didn't just run home directly from the prom? (laughs) I I didn't, but, (laughs) you know. Okay, good to know. Oh man, I'm just so intrigued and fascinated by your draconian approach here at this high school level. I mean, where does that mindset even come from to be so young at that time and be so focused and so committed?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think part of it is like, Part of it is just me. Like, I have a tendency, if I really get engaged with something and really have, like, a goal or really uh, want to do something, like, I get a little almost, like, OCD about it, obsessive-compulsive. And it was just something that, like, I I have this all-or-nothing mentality of, like, I want to be good, and this, in my mind, is what it takes to be good. So, like, forget everything else. Like, I'm going to be good at it. And it, it would cause issues and problems and you know schoolwork. like I didn't pay attention to it because it didn't it wasn't primed and focused so a lot of it was like just my mentality coming in um innately but another thing was it was like you know it was something I was good at and you get addicted to like that su- success and no- notoriety and stuff and like I was completely and utterly defined as a runner like that was my self-identity and as as you go further and further along with that like it becomes you become wrapped in it so it became like everything I had
1: was running if you could go back would you have changed that would you have enjoyed your high school experience a bit more
0: yeah I get asked that a lot and you know it's hard to look back and say like oh yeah I would have changed this because like it made me who I am today and I, I appreciate like the faults and all that but i i think what i would do is i think back then i i thought i needed to have this like unhealthy relationship with with running or success um to get there like i thought okay to be really good or great at something like you've gotta do this and i think now i realize that like that isn't the only solution right and, and if I could give high school me any advice, it would be like, hey, like your performance isn't going to suffer if you enjoy other parts of your life. So, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know you've been a huge proponent of the rest recovery. We'll get into that in a little bit. But I also want to know about the day after you run that four uh, minute and one second mile. What's that like? Does your ego get in the way there or is it, hey, I'm right back to training. That was just another event I ran in.
0: Yeah. You know, um, my high school coach was really good about that. And he used to say, Hey, Steve, like you have a 24 hour rule, which means like after the race, you've got 24 hours to like, enjoy it. Think you're like awesome, blah, 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 you know, blow your ego up. But then it's like, get back to work. And sometimes it was even shorter. I mean, I remember, you know, the evening I ran four hundred one, or afterwards, like, yeah, I had fun and I would you know, was on top of the world and stuff. But then the next morning I got up and I ran 14 miles. (laughs) So, So, you know, that's
1: kind of how it went. Oh, I'm just so fascinated by that. And then you mentioned your coach at the time gave you that 24 hour rule. Do you still use that with your athletes today?
0: You know, what I try and promote is that we can't get too high on the highs or too low on the lows. And what that means is like, enjoy it. Like, all that good stuff, but like, don't don't become like settled on it. Don't become, you know, uh, think that like you've hit the end of your goal or the end of your process. And then I think the other side of the coin is even more important. Is like, don't if if it goes bad, if it goes wrong, like don't take that as a self hit on your identity and your ego, and instead see it as information and as a way to move forward. So it's like keeping that that even keel with you know, some fluctuation instead of having like these big
1: jumps between like, oh, I want to race. I'm happy to like, oh, I did bad. Now I'm depressed. Oh, that's some great advice there. So I know you're a fan of Ryan Holiday and uh, you guys were lucky enough to have Ryan write a review of your book. Um, that's that's just incredible. He's a well respected author. He wrote ego is the enemy. So wh- what do you recommend to the athletes you're currently working with and even high school athletes? How do they control their ego at times during great success and even during failures.
0: Yeah, you know, it, Ryan, Ryan's the man. I mean, he, he did a great job with us writing that review, but you know, we were really inspired by his work and the books he's written. And, and I actually have suggested Ego's enemy to <laughs> uh, most of my team. So, but you know, when we look at ego and stuff, what, what we always try and work with as a team standpoint is like remembering why you're doing it and um, having, like, your motivation not be focused on, like, external rewards and instead, like, the internal reasons that you're doing for it. So at the beginning of every season, like, we sit down and I ask them, like, their why. Like, why are you putting in all this work to accomplish some goal? And what I'm trying to get at that is, like, what is the reasoning you're willing to suffer so much? And if I see it's for, like, you know, for the prizes or for money or for, you know, um, because it gives me notoriety compared to others. Like if I see those as the reasons, then I go to work at working at like how to shift that mindset. Cause all these things are like mindsets, right? It's like, uh, it's like, what is motivating you and how do you see success? So we really spend a lot of time on like making sure that we, um, engender in, in a good team atmosphere where we're doing this, not for ourselves and selfish reasons, but for um, all those around us, and then also internally uh, motivated instead of externally focused.
1: Oh, awesome. And I mean, these tips are exactly why I wanted to have you on this podcast. And and your new book, Peak Performance, do you want to kind of just give some background about your new book?
0: Yeah, sure. So it kind of came out of this struggle, um, as I said, with my own story. And then my co-author, Brad Stolberg, had, had a very similar story where he was high performer at um, a consulting firm, McKinsey and company and worked in white house for a bit and then just like burned out and all that stuff. So we actually came together um, having similar backgrounds and stories and we're like, Oh, we, we got to work on this because it, you know, working with high level performers. Now we are trying to make Olympic games and stuff like that. The tendency is always there to like go into this, you know, uh, ego driven, um, obsessive, um, foundation as, as your motivation. And what we want to show is that you can get success and get to the highest levels without having to do these negative things. So our book is really like a, it's almost like a common sense back to the basics, right? To, to not try and like hack your way to success, but to look at like, Hey, what
1: actually matters and let's do those things. Uh, first off, before we even dive deeper into the book, how did you get some of these people uh, to give you guys incredible reviews? You got Adam Grant, Ariana Huffington, and we mentioned Ryan Holiday. How are you so connected with these people? I mean, <laughs> it's it, it is truly unbelievable.
0: <laughs> it, you know, the, the great secret is we're not super connected to those, to anyone, you know? Um, Adam Grant, we were lucky in that um, Brad, Brad, my co-author, um, was in school at the same time as Adam. Adam was up at Michigan. Um, Adam was a little bit ahead of him, but I think he taught Brad or something like that. So we had a slight connection there. But it was really just like reaching out to these individuals and saying, "Hey." we have this idea and we've written a book and like, here's the core concepts at it. Like we're not asking for anything in return. We just think it's a really like strong message that needs to be sent. And, you know, with, with a lot of these individuals, like they would resonate with it or we'd have a, um, have a, you know, a, a good influencing connection, like a, a Dave Epstein, who's who's been a friend of mine for a while, who wrote The Sports Gym. And he'd be like, hey, like, this book is really good. I'm going to share this with someone else. And it's really through, like, friends and, like, a resonating message that got people Um, (laughs) who were way
1: beyond like our wildest dreams to, uh, review it for us. I mean, that just speaks volumes to what you guys were actually able to write in this book. And I'm also curious about your writing process. How long did it take you guys to write this book?
0: (laughs) Yeah, You know, the, uh, uh, the good thing is with two authors, it cut that time way down. So we actually wrote this thing in probably like three months, um, which is, is pretty quick for a book to, to write from scratch to get to. And our process was really interesting. So, you know, we both have different skill sets, um, but they overlap quite a bit. So what we did is we had this, like, designed our week. Um, and, and I should also mention that Brad is in uh, Oakland, California, and I'm in Houston, Texas. So it's not like we spent a lot of shoulder shoulder time with it. Um So what we did is we had like three day cycles where it would be three days where, let's say, I would write and I would take over the writing process and start on whatever chapter we were doing. And then during that time, Brad would be researching like the studies we needed to use and the details we needed to use um, and outlining the next section. And then after three days, we'd switch so that I, w- I was outlining and researching, and Brad would like go over the writing I just did and then start fresh. And then we'd take a day off and then like cycle again. And, and it was great to do, and we'd adjust a little bit um, based on how we were, you know, how the book was flowing and stuff. But it was great to do because it prevented either of us from like hitting a blocking point. Because anytime we were stuck, we had someone else to like hand over to and say, hey, like, I don't know what, my mind is jumbled. I don't know what to do here. And I'm gonna pass this off to you and you take a look and I'll dive into like using another part of my brain and like researching and outlining that doesn't require like this creative writing process. So it, it worked fabulously.
1: Were you guys advised on that process or did you come up with that on your own?
0: Yeah, no, we, we kind of made it up on our own. <laughs> Good
1: for you guys. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You you know, and it's like, it was scary going into this being like, okay, we're we're both going to write a book, but we have two different like writing styles and stuff like this. And how is this going to work? So like anything, it was a little bit of like creative talk for a while and just like figuring out what
1: best routine would work for us. What about when you're actually sitting down to write the book, anything specifically you did on your own? Oh, for sure. You know, in the book,
0: we talked about this a little bit is that, you know, the great writers and artists we talked to almost, like, engineered their environment um, so that they could write better, right? So there's, it, there's a great uh, quote. I can't remember who it, who it was from. It might have been Stephen King that said, like, like don't wait for the, the muse to find you. Like, go out and find it. And what that meant for me is that, like, I set up my environment to give me the best chance to write because like, I know I'm human. I know I'm going to be distracted by like my phone and the internet and like Facebook and all that stuff that goes on in life. So I need to set up my environment so, to prevent me from like falling into those traps. So what I did was I would turn my phone off and put it in another room so that it wasn't even near me. Um, I would turn the internet off my uh, computer, my laptop, and then in the mornings, I would sit down and write at my desk at roughly the same same time, um, with like, you know, everything about the same. And then in the afternoon or on weekends, what I would do is I had the same coffee shop that I would go to at roughly the same time and order like the same drink and just like pattern it out. And what happens is like you know, it it becomes a habit. It becomes like your brain's almost like, okay, like Steve is sitting down at this coffee shop with this drink. So that means writing time. And that's no different than like, if I went to a track and put on my running shoes and my body knows like, all right, he's gonna go for a run.
1: So it's really engineering things. Oh, I love that. And that's why I wanted to ask that question. Cause I feel like people who are listening who might have just a regular desk job, where they are missing out on so much opportunity to attack their work because they've got their phone next to them. They've got Facebook open and these constant distractions that are just setting them up for failure every single day. So I love you diving deep on that. That was fascinating to hear. So let's also talk about growth equation. I know you guys talk about this in the book. Do you want to describe growth equation at all?
0: Yeah. So in researching like um, you know, the science and then what great artists, intellects, athletes all did, what we actually found was that, like, there was this simple little equation that, that held true regardless of physical or psychological mental activities, and that is stress plus rest equals growth. And the example I always use to, like, athletes is, like, hey, if we go in and we lift weights, right, um, if I want to increase the strength or size of my bicep, for example, like, if I do curls, and I'm doing. I'm. I pick up a weight that is like really freaking heavy, and I try and do that. Like I'm not going to be able to do that. My muscle's not going to adapt to that stimulus. I get no adaptation. If I pick up a weight that is like really, um, like one pound and not that heavy, I can do curls all day, and my muscle isn't going to get stronger and grow. Or if I pick up like a good weight and do it all the way to failure all the time, like my muscle will eventually fade and burn out and like, I'm not going to adapt. So what we need is like the right amount of stress to adapt. And then we need to step away just like we do in athletics and give our muscle a break to repair and recover. And that's how we adapt and grow. And the same thing happens with intellectual pursuits. You know, we talked to, um, this mathematician who is world class and designed some stuff that, you know, I have no idea what any of it means, but, um, some great equations. And, and he talked about his process. And he said, like, I go to the whiteboard, like, I work on stuff and really stress myself. But like, my answers don't come until like, I step away, and like, go for a walk, or like, sit down and eat, or even go for you know, take a nap. And then like, once I come back, like, I get these aha moments. And, um, and, you know, I have these moments of Insight and growth. And it turns out that like from a mental standpoint, like stressing and then stepping away and resting um, is also how you learn and all that good stuff. So the growth equation is really our, our kind of um, philosophy on how to attack almost all things in life.
1: No, I, I was reading that, and I just had to write growth equation down over and over again. Uh, with my athletic background, that was one of the things, overtraining, overstressing over-stressing, and not getting enough rest. So I, I was focusing on implementing that the past few days. And then when you talk about some of these people you guys have interviewed, anyone stand out as kind of the most fascinating person you learn from the most?
0: Oh, man, there are so many. You know, my maybe I'm biased, but my, my favorite one to talk to was Matt Billingsley, who was... Uh, Who is the drummer for Taylor Swift? Um, So it it was just fascinating to talk to him because, like, before he made his break in drumming, he was a personal trainer. So, like, we would call him and be like, hey, Matt, like, tell us about, you know, all these, you know, your routines and like how you practice drumming on all this stuff. And probably for like 90% of the conversation, he would like turn that around and like ask us questions about like (laughs) running and training. I'm like, Matt, like, I'm not interesting like you are the drummer for Taylor Swift like I want to learn from you but like once we did it was just fascinating because like my favorite story was like in getting ready for we were just talking about routines and like warm-ups and stuff and it wasn't really even about the book but then we used it a lot in there is that like I was like how do you get ready for a huge performance like with with Taylor out there and all that stuff And he goes, well, well, he starts taking us through his warm-up routine, and he's like, well, you know, I start by um, doing some mobility work and then some, like, light stretching and and things like that, and then do some, maybe a little bit of cardio to get my heart rate elevated, and then, like, I'm ready to go and I drum. And I'm like, Matt, like, you didn't talk about drumming at all. And he's like, no, like, I know how to drum. Like, I practice that every day. I got that down. What I need to do is, like, get my body physically ready. And then that gets my mind physically, or my mind mentally ready. And I'm like, that is fascinating. So yeah, to me, that was really, really
1: interesting conversations with him. Oh yeah, it's fascinating hearing about that. And then you deal so much with these world-class athletes, uh, even the college athletes. I know you're, you're a coach right now, University of Houston. So psychology of performance, what are you seeing with the psychology of performance with your athletes? What makes mentally strong athletes?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think in the past we had this idea of like, hey, like mentally toughness, mental toughness means like gritting your teeth and like, you know, trying to push through everything, right? It's like the the old, you know, bro view of it, I guess, as what I would call it. But like what I've seen with like world class athletes that I've coached and then I also talked to, is like. Toughness isn't about gritting your teeth. It's about, like, dealing with and accepting the inevitable pain that's going to come. Like, working out hard racing hurts a ton. Like, it's just an unpleasant activity. If you ever expect it to be easy, like, you, you just, you're going to fail. It's not going to be. So the athletes we talk to, and athletes I coach, like, I really focus on pushing them as, like, hey, it's going to hurt, but, like, we need to develop the mental coping strategies to almost accept that. And, like, be okay with it. And what we talked about in the book, and this comes directly from a few athletes that I talked to, is I was like, what happens when it really hurts during a race? Like, what do you do? And they they told me, they're like, well, what I try and do is have a calm conversation with myself. And, And what that means is, like, the tendency is when stuff starts to really hurt and you're really struggling and you're still a long ways away from completing your race or your task. Is to have a, a mental freakout moment to be like, oh my god, like this hurts a lot. Like I still have a couple miles to go. How in the world am I going to finish this? And when you let yourself go down that path, like you just your body just follows, and you start feeling worse, and you start slowing down, and you it just goes negative. And what the athletes have told me, and what we try and work on, in, instead is like recognizing that, like, okay, it really hurts. Um, I still have a long way to go, but I can create space and like have a choice here where I can sit there and have a calm conversation, like debating myself instead of having this emotional freak out moment.
1: Hmm. Is that something you're able to coach in them? Or is that just going to be an innate ability that they're able to kind of have that conversation with themselves?
0: You know, it's something that, that we coach in it a lot. I mean, I think it's innate to a degree, but I think it's definitely something you can improve on and what what i've done from a coaching standpoint is really shifted my my focus a lot instead of sitting there and and telling them like how many how many interval reps to do and what paces to do and focus on like running a certain speed a lot of times what we'll do is is shift the focus to like internally and say hey like during this rep like i know it's going to hurt a lot but focus on like that mental conversation you're having and like try and deal with and cope with that and put them in a place where they can almost train to have, like, the right self-talk and conversations with themselves. And then also another thing that I've done that I think has really made a difference is, like, outside of running for us, I put them in, like, stressful situations and had them, like, ha- try to have these, like, calm conversations where they create space and don't have these emotional reactions. So things like uh, holding your breath like as long as you can and like recognizing that like fear response where it's like oh my gosh I need to breathe and like talking and calming yourself down on out of that or other things like throwing people like in an ice bath up to up to almost their head and being like you know hey like you're gonna get this like stress response and like let's try and feel it let's try and develop ways to accept and cope with it instead of just going to like oh my gosh this this is really freaking cold.
1: Do you personally use breath work and ice baths uh, in your routines? Yeah, I, I do.
0: I, I do a lot. Um, again, I, I think it's, it's you know, it's good to put yourself in those places. And I think something happens when when you uh, put a little bit of stress on yourself that, you that, um, makes it a little easier to work with than if i went down and said just did you know meditation for example which is great by in itself like it's really great but i think like putting a little stress on yourself really translates over to the the athletic performance and i think breath work just gives you a center of focus and ability to like control your your body's reactions
1: um and it's just another tool in the toolbox that we, we can use. Oh, I got you. Yeah, the breath work something I've been implementing like crazy the past six months. Uh, I've been working with Brian McKenzie, who was a past guest on this. And that I mean, I've just seen so many profound impacts. Can you dive at all into the specifics of your breath work?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, <laughs> I guess I do it in two different ways. You know, I first started with just doing like meditation style focused on breathing um, work. And then, like once I got a, uh, got okay with that, what I started to do was like do breath work in in the water um, because I think first off you get this like you get this reaction where you can like feel your stomach or your diaphragm in in your stomach area like fill with air and release with air, and it like really has this like proprioceptive centering thing. And then what I started doing again was like breath work under underwater. Um, you know, in like really rhythmic breathing. And then again, getting more complicated as I go, like in controlling my breath, going really for diaphragmatic breathing um, in ice conditions uh, or in like ice baths and stuff like that. And again, it's increasing the stress load um, as we go. And I think like anything, like the specifics of like how to do breath work, like others can tell you way more than I can. But I really focus on like deep diaphragmatic breathing and then also do some things to put me into stress like where I'll do almost like, I don't know, Wim Hof style like quick inhalations, exhalations um, and then go back and forth between that and like deep diaphragmatic breathing and and giving myself like different, I guess, I, I, I guess different tools to utilize given different situations.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. No, I just wanted to know that was such a selfish question. (laughs) I just asked this this, because I was so curious with your breath work. So I know you mentioned the ice baths. Anything else that you do for recovery or do you not even use the ice bath for recovery? That's more of a mental thing.
0: Yeah. You know, I use ice baths a lot for mental stuff. From the recovery standpoint, it's interesting. Like ice baths have some really good stuff. And then what they can also do is, is impair adaptation sometimes, depending on uh, the research uh, you look at. But what the reason it does that is like the stress we put on our body is the stimulus to grow and adapt. So like all the muscle damage and inflammation and stuff that sends a signal that says like, Hey muscles, like we can't deal with this. Like we need to grow stronger. So sometimes if we eliminate that or reduce that too quickly with an ice bath right after a workout, sometimes we, we, we dampen down that signal to adapt. So what I tell my athletes is like, Hey, if you can deal with it and you can recover and uh, and not use an ice bath during the times when we're really trying to get like physical adaptations, then don't. But then save it until when you need it, when you're like really trying to recover for a race or a competition or what have you. That's the time to use the ice bath. And you know the the interesting thing on on recovery that that was profound and really impacted what I did was that from a stress standpoint and getting like the body back down from like that high cortisol stressed area down to a more, um, a better, um, non-catabolic state is that social recovery can shift that hormonal balance. So we can, if you're just hanging out and shooting the shit with your friends after a workout that can actually decrease cortisol and increase testosterone, um, more so than doing some of these other in- interventions. So like what I did was I engineered our my athletes workouts to make sure that like when they were done, like they were talking to each other and interacting and all that stuff. And it might've been as simple as having like an informal cool down exercise uh, mobility session where it's like them talking while they're going through these motions or even more so what we did Um, For a while is like have breakfast ready right after the track uh, so that they spent the time, you know, 15, 20 minutes like eating good food, but also like conversing with uh, amongst themselves to get some of that social recovery happening.
1: No, I love hearing that. I mean, it just shows your breadth of knowledge because, I mean, your first book, The Science of Running, I mean, so many things you do deal directly with the science, but then what you were just talking about, that social interaction and, and how that can help change athletes, can boost their testosterone, just absolutely fascinating to hear. So one thing I also want to talk about is we were talking about the mental side of things and the negativity with self-talk. Can we talk about the car ride home and how parents impact kids?
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That is one of my favorite conversations because, you know, um, if you look at the, 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 uh, the drop off from like youth sports to even high school sports, like it's immense, absolutely immense. And part of the reason that happens, I think, is that car ride home, because what happens is like the message that parents send um, can influence how the athlete or how their child sees sport And what their motivation is for it. So it will completely shift the mindsets um, that last for a lifetime. You know, I deal with professional athletes who almost have, like, these mental motivation scars that are from, you know, you talk to them, they're from, like, 12-year-old, you know, soccer practice when their dad got on to them for, you know, screwing up and made made the center of focus as, like, you can't fail. And what happens out of a lot of these things is, if the car ride home was bad, and by bad, I mean you focus on what the athlete did wrong and, like, <clears throat> you know, um, really put pressure on them to, uh, to improve their performance and, like, make it about the parent instead of the child's enjoyment of it and the process of them getting better, if the parent does that, then what, what actually happens is, like, it can create this fear of failure. And it can create this fear of failure that lasts for a lifetime, which means next time the athlete goes into the competition, they're not striving to perform because like it's a good thing to do and it's something they want to do. They're trying to make it through the race or the game or whatever they have to make sure that they don't disappoint their their parent, so that they don't get yelled at, so that they don't like get disciplined or or you know talk down them apart. It's almost like this, if you think about it, it's almost like this survival coping mechanism that we develop, right? It's like, oh gosh, last time I messed up, I got in trouble. So like, I have to do everything so that I don't mess up, so that I don't get yelled at, so I don't have this negative consequence. And if it happens enough, it gets ingrained. And it can get ingrained for life where it impacts people um, far beyond what they do in sport and it will impact like their risk, their ability to take risks, their risk averseness, their, um, their fear, their motivation for doing other things in life. So, you know, parents, you have a really strong responsibility to set the car ride home conversation up, right. And to really deliver the right messages and realize that it's not about you. You're not living through your, Your student or your kid, like it's about them and like really
1: keep that in focus. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean all day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted the cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what got you there. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I'm a huge fan of Audible and definitely recommend checking it out. I mean, your, your quote there talking about just the impact it can have outside of sports. And it can be a lifelong impact based on these little things. And it, it's scary to see some of these these conversations I see parents have with kids. It's unfortunate. I hope we see a, a, a change in tide here. Uh, another thing I have to talk about with you, you guys mentioned this in the book, is feats of superhuman strength. Can you talk about this at all?
0: Yeah, sure. You know, that's another, uh, again, it's all fascinating to me, but like, um, so we've all heard like stories of like, you know, someone, a mom lifting up the car to save their kid who was, like, trapped under it or other, like, superhuman things that we almost, you know, that the tendency is to brush off, to be like, oh, yeah, that's exaggerated. It didn't happen. But there's actually a field of research called hysterical strength that focuses on these things, focuses on people doing, like, incredible um feats of, of human performance that should not be possible and that aren't possible for that same person in other situations. And what they've looked at and what, what they've learned is that the reason that they can do this, that a mom can, you know, lift a car off her child Is because the brain almost has like this governor on on exercise performance or physical performance. And it doesn't let us get near close to maximum because it knows like, hey, if we use all the muscle fibers that we can use, then we're likely to like tear and injure ourselves. But the interesting thing is if the motivation and like reward and purpose for doing that is so high that it overrides that like risk. Then the body will say screw it like all hands on deck like here's all the adrenaline in the world all your muscles like use it like it is worth it and those cases only happen normally if it's something like with a super strong purpose so what we found is that if you actually just increase your purpose for life or purpose for doing an activity To something that is like beyond yourself for it. So it's not selfish reasons. So if it's for your family or your kids, or even for your team that sacrificed so much, um, for you to get there, then you can actually improve, improve your physical performance,
1: but also your enjoyment for it. Oh man. Hysterical strength. I mean, that, that topic alone is a a reason to pick up the book. I'm just so fascinated by all of these things you guys have been covering. Uh, I know your time sensitive. So I got a few more quick hit questions. If you got time for it, so sure. one thing I want to do is, who are you learning from today, and what are they teaching you?
0: Oh wow! Um, you know, I, I try and learn from every single person I interact with, and I think that's that's one of the mistakes we make is that we think like we can only learn from like these big names and like these gurus who have the answer. But the reality is like everyone has experience and everyone has answers. So. Today this moment like I was learning from my athletes um, some of my college kids who were on on a run together and I was asking like hey like how are you guys dealing with the heat because we're in Houston Texas right and they explained me like different ways that they've like set up their their training so that they can avoid things and all that stuff so you know I think process of learning is like learn from everybody you interact with
1: Oh, that is such a good tip. And there's so many different people you can learn from in so many different ways. Do you have any ideas that you've changed in the last year because you've learned something new?
0: Yeah, I I probably have ideas from like two weeks ago. Let's hear
1: some of them. I need to.
0: (laughs) That's changed stuff for, you know? um, You know, in the process of writing the book, I think the biggest thing was, was like the cell phone stuff. Like I knew it, but like I was like, I would just like turn my phone on silent and stuff like that, and then we talked to this um, this venture capitalist, and he was like, "No, you got to take it out of the out of the room." And I was like, "Why?" He's like, "Well, think about it. Have you ever like sat there and like had your phone in your pocket and it was on silent, and then you like felt a phantom vibration?" and I was like yeah and I look at my phone and nothing's there it's like yeah because if it's anywhere near you your brain will think that like your brain is conditioned to get your phone so like that from a book standpoint was like I was like all right I really got to take control of this phone thing because like I can sit there and
1: like refresh on Twitter for hours if I let myself that damn phantom vibrate. I'm telling you the first time I ever experienced this, I was like, are you kidding me? What is this? And isn't it something now like 90% of high school students actually all have this phantom vibrate feel?
0: Yeah, it's, insane. <laughs> it, it's nuts, but that shows you how powerful like the brain is because, it, you know, that's another thing. Like I learned from reading a book called how emotions are made last week is like, the brain predicts stuff. The reason that, like, you feel that vibration is like you're used to it. It's like a slot machine. Like you're used to hearing the the sound when you pull the thing. So, like, your brain just predicts it. it's like, oh, we haven't had a vibration for a while, so like, uh, there must be one. So like, let's make them feel it, which is just mind blowing to me.
1: Do you do anything for your sleep?
0: Yeah. So I've always, you know, based on my story of going to bed at at ten o'clock in high school, I've always <laughs> been a pretty disciplined fun sleeper but you know what I've done more recently is a I put like I've used uh, apps like flux which will change the blue light of my phone and my computer um, I've really kind of put strict rules on on um, having electronics in my bedroom and stuff like that because I don't want that blue light interference and another thing is I've just set up my r- routine like I try to go to bed at roughly the same time um it's probably close to 10 now so i've kept that so it's a routine but i also try and do the same things like i try and read in bed right before i go and go to sleep and and just keep that routine because like the routine is what does it for me if i have
1: that routine then i'm gonna sleep um so that's about it yeah i certainly agree with the routine i mean you've dealt with some world-class athletes anyone who's been the most impressive athlete, and I don't only mean from an athletic standpoint, maybe the mental toughness you've seen out of this person.
0: Yeah, you know, my favorite story is a a young lady I I coached named Natasha Rogers, who who, um, is actually, I think, number two in the the U.S. right now in the 5K. And she was a U.S. half marathon champion this year. And her story is so interesting because, like, just briefly, she— she was an NCAA champion in, in college, and and just had after that got thrown into the spotlight. Like is a very almost like hippie go happy go lucky kind of girl, and the pressure just got to her, and she stepped away from the sport for I think like two or three years, um, moved down to South America, and just like lived life, and then came back, um, tried to take it up with a professional group, got injured, had stress fractures and stuff like that, and then we started working together and the funny thing is like for the first like three months we worked together she wouldn't wear a watch or anything <laughs> because she she almost had she called it like ptsd with running she was like i don't want to know how fast i'm going i don't want to know how long i'm going how many miles i'm going like i just need to enjoy it so we spent like three months of her just enjoying it and meanwhile she's trying to make like u.s championships and stuff like that And, like, we've gotten to a point now where she uses watches and all that stuff, but it was really just impressive to see how she came back from, like, that mentally and having, like, so much damage to now, like, being a champion, U.S. half-champion. And and doing it her way, like, you know, a a lot of us think, like, oh, like, you have to get, you know, go to bed at 10 o'clock like I did. And she said, like, I need a social life like it it keeps me sane and balanced and like I'm not going to be the perfect runner like I'm going to get all the work I need to get in and I'm going to make sure I get the recovery but I also need to have this other component in my life to run well and like I was just like all right like you know what to do and I have to trust you on these aspects like you know yourself better than I do and like she doesn't you know live the normal runner life but like she gets the work done and gets, gets, you know, the performance there. And I think it's been refreshing to see like someone step away from like what everyone else says and says like, Hey, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it my way. And I'm going to work my ass off to do it my way. But like, it's gotta be this
1: way. Yeah. Natasha storing, I mean, story, you hit it perfectly. It's just refreshing. So I'm so glad you brought her up. Uh, two more questions before we get into what you're doing. Uh, what are you most passionate about in your life right now?
0: Oh gosh. Um, you know, probably learning, <laughs> you know, it, it, if I could sit here and like learn, and even these conversations with you are great because it like, I learned stuff from you and like, I, it makes me think and all this stuff. If I could sit here and think and learn from everybody, like that would be great. And, and that, that is, that is probably it. And, and like passing that, that message down to, to other people, you know, I think, I think we spend a, there's a lot of negativity in the world and like trying to help people figure out how to get better at whatever it is they're doing um,
1: is really a, a passion of mine right now. Oh, that's awesome. So you mentioned the learning. If you could have my listeners implement one thing of their lives, what would it be? I know you've hit on so many things throughout this episode, but if there's one first and foremost, what would it be?
0: <laughs> oh, man. Um, geez. It. it <laughs> I think it would probably have to be sleep, hmm. and it, it sounds like really basic to do, right? But the science behind it, the amount other people like emphasized it and stuff. Like there's this real culture and and in, in our you know on our world of high performers of like oh just get like four hours of sleep and you'll be good and stuff like that or like hack your sleep and stuff like that. And I really think like figuring out how to like maximize your recovery and your learning and sleep, um, it's profound. So get as much sleep as you can and like
1: figure out how to get, get that in your life. Awesome. Love hearing that. So Steve, how can my listeners connect with you and stay up to date all things you're working on? Yeah,
0: sure. So, um, I'm on all social medias, um, on Twitter. It's at Steve Magnus on Instagram at Steve Magnus. Um, I have a a blog that's more running related called scienceofrunning.com and then you can check out my book, Peak Performance.
1: Yeah, we are definitely gonna get all that linked up in the show notes and believe me, I cannot recommend your book, Peak Performance, enough. It is a fascinating read, one I definitely think all my listeners should pick up. So Steve, you are the man. I could have gone on for hours having this conversation with you, but I know your time's limited, so thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Sean, I appreciate it.
0: We got you there with Sean Delaney. uh what got you there with Laney What got you there with Shondelaney? Uh What got you there with got you, got you?
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.